If you would open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 13. In the book of Numbers and the book of Deuteronomy are somewhat similar in that they describe similar events and activities. Um, one gets in a lot more detail about what's going on, the transmission of the uh, civil law, the moral law, etc. So some very distinct similarities and yet some differences in how the history of the nation of Israel is covered. So when we get to Numbers 13, the nation of Israel is now called the people of God. They were not called the people of God until after they were exiled from their 430-year period of slavery under the most powerful country of the day, and that was Egypt. God had called Moses to be the deliverer, and Moses went and challenged Pharaoh, and through God's working through the life of Moses, the ten plagues were handed down to Egypt as a sign of God's presence and His power, and His demand to let His people go so that they would be free to worship Him, and that's exactly what transpired They eventually made their way across the Red Sea, miraculously parted before them. The most powerful army of the day drowned as the waters receded back. And as they made their way into the desert in preparation for the promised land that God was giving to them, He provided for the manna from heaven when there was nothing for them to eat. He provided water in their desert when there was nothing for them to drink. He gave them instructions on building the tabernacle. He told them what the moral law, the civil law, and the religious law was going to be for them because they were now His people. There was a constant reminder of God's presence amongst the nation of Israel, fire by night and a cloud by day. And the last piece of God's plan was for the nation of Israel to cross over into the promised land that He had given to them. So as they are making their way through this desert area to the land that God was going to give to them, they stood at the intersection of opportunity and choice. They were either going to cross over or they were going to go back into Egypt. God had brought them to this point, yet they found themselves at a crisis of belief. Everything that God had done, all of the miracles that they had, God, that they had seen God perform, they were now at this point where there is a crisis of belief as they're challenged to go forward into this unknown future or they were going to withdraw and go backwards. So with overwhelming evidence of God's power behind them, they suddenly stopped believing God and stopped moving forward. Now, as an introduction into where we will be in Numbers 13 and 14, the first point in our outline is this. Crossing over begins with a vision of the provision. Because Deuteronomy and Numbers somewhat run parallel to one another, this provision that God was making to the nation of Israel was explained in Deuteronomy 1, 19 to 21. And here's what God says. Then he set out, excuse me, then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, just as the Lord our God had commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is about to give to us. See, the Lord your God has placed the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has spoken to you. Do not fear 
or be dismayed. So this was the provision that God was giving to them. They had to have some kind of an idea about what that might be like. And as they have crossed through this terrible wilderness, God is giving them a vision of what is to come. So there is this contrast of the wilderness as they pass through to the promised land, which is about to be their destination. Now as we begin in Numbers 13, we'll continue on. We're not going to read the entirety of 13. We'll skip some of the naming of the leaders and the tribes. But look in 13, 1 and 2. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. Now, they didn't send just anybody. They didn't ask for volunteers. It wasn't alphabetical order. They were to send leaders from each of these tribes to go into the land to spy on the land, to get an idea about what the land was going to be like. As leaders, they would know the faithfulness of God best, and they would be familiar with the purposes of God as He was giving it to them through their leader Moses. Now pick up in verses 17 and following. When Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, Go up there into the Negev, then go up into the hill country. See what the land is like, and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. How is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? And how are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? How is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. Now, here's what we need to understand. God knew exactly what the land was like. He didn't need for them to come back and give a report so God would know this was their scout to see how good the provision was going to be and the choice was whether or not they were going to catch a vision of what God was making available to them or they would not. Popular author Chuck Swindoll says this about vision. Vision is the ability to see God's presence to perceive God's power, and to focus on God's plan in spite of the obstacles. Let me repeat that. Vision is the ability to see God's presence. Do we see God? In the provision God is making, do the Israelites see Him in it? It is also to perceive God's power. Did the nation of Israel know anything about the power of God? Well, they'd spent 430 years enslaved to the Egyptians. And when there was no possible way that they could escape, God sent the plagues and they, were, they, they left through the waters of the Red Sea. They had plundered the people before they left. And then the Red Sea swallowed up the army behind them. Had they seen the power of God in the manna? in the water, in the fire by night, the cloud by day. They had seen His presence. They had seen His power. The third part of this is to focus on God's plan in spite of the obstacles. Think about that. God knew exactly what the land was like. God knew they were going to see it exactly 
as it was, yet because of his presence and his power and his purposes, they were to focus on him and not the physical characteristics of the land. Notice the key. The key in this is this is God's plan for the, for the nation of Israel. To go into the promised land that he was providing for them. Now one of the key differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament is that the Old Testament was about the promised land. It was about having a place that is your own. It is the provision of God for your boundaries, for your soil, for your agricultural life, for the herds of cattle and sheep and goat that you would raise. But for us, it's not about a physical kingdom. It's about a spiritual kingdom. We are to catch a glimpse of God's plan to build His spiritual kingdom in us and through us. It's not about big buildings. It's not about a high-profile ministry. It's about the people of God following His plan that He lays out before them, trusting in His presence and His power and His ability to see these plans come to pass. Every single Christian, every single Bible-believing church stands on the edge of either crossing over into God's provision, believing Him and following Him, or not. You and I have a wide range of evidence of God's faithfulness in our lives. Don't we? Can't we look back and see the faithfulness of God? All these different periods in our life, all these different decades where God's presence and power and provision were so clear to us that we should never ever wonder, where is God, how is God going to do this, etc. We should believe in His future provision as we seek to honor Him and follow His plan whatever that might be. God's plan for us isn't related to occupying a physical, boundary-laden piece of ground, but it is about the spiritual kingdom that God wants to build in us and through us. God's plan hinges on the impact of the power of the gospel message. God's plan hinges on the impact of the power of the gospel message. You know what that means? It doesn't depend upon you and me. It's not about our strength. It's not about our ability. It's not about our faith. It's about God's power in the gospel message as we seek to live that out in our daily lives. God, God's plan hinges on what He has done for us, what He has enabled us to do, through the Holy Spirit who indwells us and gives us both the desire and the ability to do what God has called us to do. It would be a tragedy if God called us to do these great things but didn't empower us to do it. It would be a terrible thing if God had empowered us to do these things but didn't give us the desire to do it. So this power of the gospel message is expressed in at least five ways, and we're going to look at this again next week. It's expressed, number one, in our salvation. The power of the gospel is for our salvation. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Secondly, 
It is for our new spiritual life, Ephesians 2, 1, and verses 4 through 7. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might know the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He has saved us and he has given us new life. This new life is found in our union with Christ. The power of the gospel is for our spiritual victory. Ephesians 3, 14-16, Paul says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, listen to this, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. You know what that means? Is that the Holy Spirit that indwells us empowers us to do everything that God has called us to do. He has given us the power to have victory in our lives over our weaknesses, over the obstacles, over the sin, over the spiritual enemies. God has given us spiritual victory and it comes through the Gospel message. Number four, for our spiritual intimacy. Not just so that we can be called the sons of God and the daughters of God, but that you and I, through the gospel, can have an intimacy with the Father. Ephesians 3, 17-19. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Not an impersonal deity, but a Father who wants us to know the height, the breadth, the depth, and the width of God's love for us, as expressed to us through the cross of Christ, the gospel message. Number five, it is for our continued praise. The gospel is not about just our salvation. It's not just about our spiritual victory. It's not just about our intimacy with the Father, but for our ongoing continued praise of the name which is above every name. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. The power of the Gospel enables us to praise Him continually regardless of of what state of life we might find ourselves in. So greatness begins with the vision of God's provision for us. So for us, it is living out the great commandment within the body of believers, and it is living out the great commission where we take the power of the gospel out of the walls of this church and to the community, to those who desperately need to hear the message. It is being God's people in this community that directs others to Him. Now, the obstacle 
the obstacle that we face in catching a vision of the provision that God makes for us is very simply unbelief. Our chief obstacle in this is going to believe is going to be unbelief. Did God really say that? Will God really do that? Can we really trust God to lead us? Can I really trust God enough to lose myself in him? This is the major obstacle that the nation of Israel is facing. All of the faithfulness of God behind them, God's power and God's presence, and the uncertainty of this land before them creates this crisis of unbelief. And unbelief is always going to be an obstacle to our faithfulness to Him and our ability to experience His provision for us. Number two in our outline is very simply this. Crossing over requires faith. Note what it says here in chapter 13, verse 2. Send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. What did God say? God said, I am giving this land to you. Did God really say that? Did God really mean that? Can we really trust God to fulfill this? Is God going to leave us high and dry? Are we going to find ourselves in the midst of some unbelievable hardship and God is not going to be there? You see, that is the crisis. The crisis of unbelief requires our faith. The land was theirs. God had already determined it. In order for them to obtain it and to possess it and to inhabit it, all they needed to do was to obey God and take from Him what He said He was going to give to them. Now, first of all, notice the favorable report that comes back from the spies. Look down in Numbers 13, verse 27. Thus they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Now, is there literal streams of milk? No. Are there streams of honey? No. What does it mean? It means that the land is so plentiful, we've never experienced anything like this before, and it is so different from that terrible wilderness that we have just traveled through. This is an amazing land, and here are some of its fruit. They cut down a big chunk of a grape tree, and they had to carry it on a pole on their shoulders because the fruit was so big. And the point is very simply this. God's provision is always good. Do we believe that? God's provision is always good. Now, notice the concern. Verses 28 and 29. Nevertheless, in spite of how good the land is, the people who live in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Anak was the big giant. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev. And the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country. And the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the, by the side of the Jordan. And you could almost hear him say, like from the Wizard of God, lions and tigers and bears, oh my, what are we going to do? It's a wonderful land, but look at all the obstacles that are there. 
The concern is over the perceived obstacles. It is completely devoid of remembering the power of God and the presence of God and the provision that God is giving to them. They aren't looking at these obstacles with spiritual eyes. They're looking at them with natural eyes. Natural eyes will never consider God's power, God's faithfulness, God's plan, or God's presence. Never. They are not focused on the provision that God is making. They are only focused on the obstacles. So here, there is an absolute call for them to exercise faith. There's two responses in this passage to the call for faith. Number one is to trust and obey. Do we trust God? And if we do then we will obey. Numbers 13.30, they've heard about the land flowing with milk and honey. They've heard about the fortifications and the giants who were there. 13.30, then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. You see the faith? Caleb doesn't have a doubt in the world. Caleb possesses spiritual eyes. Caleb knows of the faithfulness of God. He remembers the power of God. He trusts in the provision of God. He is not going to be afraid because he knows who God is. So for Caleb, the blessing always outweighs the obstacles. Our trust in following God should always outweigh the fear. But that's a spiritual battle, isn't it? You and I have the propensity to be absolutely paralyzed by fear. And if you're not sure of that, we shouldn't have to look much further than the whole COVID thing. People are scared to death to leave their house. They're scared to death to come to church. They're scared to death to go to a store. So they isolate themselves, fearing that any day death is going to come. Our trust and following Him should always outweigh the fear. His promise to be with us, to strengthen us, to provide for us, to lead us, should be enough for us to go forward. Because after all, We stand on the authority of God's promises. We stand upon the assurance of the victory that already belongs to God. This is something that Jesus articulated during his earthly ministry to his disciples as a part of their preparation for their apostolic ministry. And here's what we read in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? See, that's really the question. Who do we say that he is? Well, Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus had said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And what? The gates of Hades will not overpower it. 
Peter's profession of faith was very simply the truth of the gospel message. Our salvation, our victory, our intimacy, our ability to do everything that God has called us to do. That is the essence of the gospel message. And Jesus says to Peter, the world, the gates of Hades, the power of the enemy cannot, will not overpower it. That's a crisis of unbelief for you and I. Do we really believe that to be true? Do we really believe this promise is made to us today? Do we really believe that we stand upon the authority of God's Word and that He who promised to never leave us or forsake us, do we really believe that He is going to be with us? So the first call to faith here is to trust and obey. The second one is to doubt and rebel. Numbers 13, verses 31 to 33. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go, against, go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There, were all, we, there also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, are a part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. When we possess natural eyes, the obstacles always outweigh the blessing. Always. When the obstacles in our mind outweigh the blessing, then we will postpone, we will hesitate, we will resist, we will question, we will digress, and eventually we will go back. Economic challenges, unknown futures, perceived weaknesses, always many factors that exaggerate the obstacles so that with our natural eyes, they will always outweigh the blessing. Now, two things I want us to note about this report. The first thing they said was the land devours its inhabitants. I wonder what they saw. Did they see sinkholes swallow up large groups of people? Did they see enemies and animals and other things come out of the hills and attack swarms of people? How could they ever come to such a conclusion that the land was going to devour its inhabitants? And even if they did see something like that, how are these obstacles going to be more powerful and greater than God? After all, these people saw with their own eyes the entirety of the Egyptian army get swallowed up in the receding waters of the Red Sea. Second thing, that we note about this report, is they said that we are grasshoppers in our own sight. And there it is. In our own sight. Here's the question. Who are we in the sight of God? Are we grasshoppers? Are we frail little beings that have no chance and standing up against the great obstacles that we might face in the pursuit of fulfilling God's promises and purposes and plans in our lives and in the life of our church? Think about what you and I are able to do apart from God's presence and power working in us. 
Not very much, right? What is it that we can do when God is on our side? Is God not the God of the impossible? Is not God the one who overwhelms the strongholds of this world? Is not God the same God who elevates the meek and the humble? The obstacle to vision is unbelief. The obstacle to faith is fear. When you and I are dominated by our fear, we will not exercise faith. So after hearing the report from the faithless leaders who concluded that the land devours its inhabitants and we are grasshoppers in our own sight, here's what takes place now beginning in Numbers 14, verses 1-4. through Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. You see, there it is. They have the ability, the choice, to cross over into God's provision or go backward. They were so unhappy with Moses and Aaron that they basically said, you're fired, we want to find somebody else who's going to do for us what we want, not necessarily what God says He wants, So who's with me? All the congregation of Israel wept and cried that night. Fear will exaggerate the obstacles. Fear will intensify our unbelief. Fear will create suspicion and mistrust of God. And fear will intensify our comfort and our complacency. Fear will paralyze us into activity. Just like the nation of Israel, a church will either go forward or go backward. The church's decision to go forward or backward is lived out in the individual decisions each one of us live out in our daily lives, either to follow God and obey God or to follow self and do whatever self desires. When the leader emerges and says, let's go, we'll either say, I can't, or we'll say, count me in. The malicious report of the ten spies spread throughout the camp like a vicious virus. The words of Caleb and Joshua were never heard. They never heard about the land flowing with milk and honey. They were never reminded of God's faithfulness. They were never encouraged to not be riddled by fear. People only heard of walled cities and strong men and giants and of the fabled Nephilim. Giant clusters of grapes were now a sign of doom. If clusters of grapes were as great as these, imagine what the people would be like. Nobody talked about God's grace. Nobody talked about God's faithfulness. Nobody recited His miracles. They had forgotten the Red Sea the thunder of Sinai, the fire of God, that He had spoken and delivered and graced His people beyond imagination. All these things were forgotten because they were gripped by fear. 
So in this narrative, notice the final plea. In Numbers 14, verses 5 through 10, Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel, Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, and they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us, Do not fear them, but all the congregation said to stone them with stones. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. So Moses and Aaron and Caleb and Joshua fall to their faces in a sign of repentance. They make a final plea to the nation of Israel to trust and obey. And the response of the congregation of Israel is, Death to you. We don't want anything to do with what you're leading us to do. So number three in the outline, refusing to cross over brings consequences. God's word to us, his instruction, his command, always requires a response. Always. God's command, his instruction, always requires a response. The first consequence we see here is this. Number one, God is angered when we rebel. Numbers 14, 11, and 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me, and how long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. God is pronouncing judgment on rebellion. He's pronouncing judgment on unbelief. God gives Moses a chance to assert his leadership and go, and Moses prays that God will not destroy them, ignoring the opportunity to fulfill God's plan. Basically, what God is saying is this, I will eliminate those who want to rebel And those who want to follow you and Aaron into the promised land, through you I will make a great nation that I will possess as my own. Moses pleads for the people and says, don't do that. And so Moses prays and ignores his opportunity to go in personally and fulfill God's plan. Number two, God may withdraw his blessing This is God's response to Moses' prayer, verses 20 to 23. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word, but indeed as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Do you see that right there? That is God's chief purpose for his people, that others would see the glory of the Lord. Verse 22, Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. God was withdrawing his blessing from this vast multitude who would not believe. And here's the price, the principle that we understand in this, is there is a heavy price to be paid 
for refusing to follow and to obey God. Now this withdrawal of blessing includes Moses and Aaron and every adult over the age of 20. They would live in what Deuteronomy 119 described as the great and terrible wilderness. This would be their home for more than 40 years. When we refuse to cross over, when we say no to the best that God has to offer personally in our own lives, corporately in our church, and if we anger God in our rebellion, it's possible that God will withdraw his blessing from us. Number three, God may delay his blessing. We see this in Numbers 14:24. But my servant Caleb, because he's had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. So this 40-year period, imagine that. I've, I pointed this out many, many months ago in a message. And I had uh, Travis stand up, and this was Travis was Tony at 17-ish, and then Tony standing up some 40 years later, and you think, my, a lot of life has passed by, right? 40 years. They sacrificed 40 years in the promised land because they refused to believe and follow. Number four, God may remove his protection. Verses 39 through 45, when Moses spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. So Moses said, guess what? You get what you want. We're not going in. We're going to stay in the wilderness for 40 years, and you're going to die in the wilderness. Well, they didn't like that. They mourned greatly. In the morning, however, they rose up early and went up to the ridge of the hill country, saying, here we are. We have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised But Moses said, why then are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord when it will not succeed? Do not go up or you will be struck down before your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will be there in front of you, and you will fall by the sword inasmuch as you have turned back from following the Lord, and the Lord will not be with you. But they went up heedlessly to the ridge of the hill country. Neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses left the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and struck them and beat them down as far as Hormah. Sometimes, and we never know, sometimes we may only get a single opportunity to cross over. Think about that. This people had one opportunity to cross over. Now, there had been a lot of stuff in between this final straw that broke the camel's back, if you will. But sometimes, we put God to the test one time too many, and God removes his protection. If you remember when we studied the book of Revelation and we did the seven churches there, five of the seven churches were instructed to repent or they were going to have their lampstand removed. Right? Remember that? Repent or I will remove your lampstand from you. Now, if the church of God is the light of the world, the light of the community, and if God says repent or I will remove your lampstand from you, guess what? There is no light in the church. Regardless of what we try, regardless of what we do, our refusal 
can result in God withdrawing his protection from us. When does that time come? I have no idea. I have no idea. But do we want to risk that? Individually, do we want to risk that corporately? Church, I believe with all my heart, individually and corporately, we will go forward and we will face the crisis of unbelief with fear, or with faith, rather, or we will go backwards and we will succumb to the fear and not experience the best of God's provision for us. Now, if you have a choice to make in that, what do you choose? Well, our choice isn't just with what we say. Our choice is lived out in our obedience to the Lord individually. Our catching a glimpse of the provision that God has made for us as a body corporately and pursuing that with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, trusting in the faithfulness of God, the presence of God, the power of God, knowing that He will fulfill His vision for us. There's a lot of details in a vision, but the big picture is very simply this. We are to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded. And he says, and I will be with you to the very end of the age. Do we believe him or do we not? Would you pray with me, please? Father, we know that the nation of Israel is a tragic story in so many ways. They were constantly challenged and following you and expressing their faith in you, just as, just as we are today. It wasn't long after they entered into the promised land through Joshua and saw its boundaries expand exponentially through the reign of David. Not long after that, the northern and the southern kingdoms fell. And the nation of Israel was no longer a nation until 1948. God, I pray that we would never be willing to put you to the test where we would risk you removing your protection, withdrawing your blessing, or delaying your blessing from us. God, I pray that in our crisis of unbelief that we would choose to exercise faith in who you are. God, I pray that you would remind us that our love for you and our lives live for you don't end on Sunday morning. This is where we come to be challenged and encouraged and rejuvenated in our desires to honor you and serve you. I pray that we would get back to the heart of the matter and that is loving you first, you being the center of our affection, willing to lose ourself in you because you're worthy and because we trust you. God, I pray that you would raise up within this church men and women who would say, count me in when a vision is unleashed, when an opportunity is presented, when there's a need to stretch beyond the boundaries of our church to see the power of the gospel message spread through our community. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, 
through the power of the Spirit that works within us, your children. May we praise you and glorify you all the days of our earth, all the days of our life on this earth as we see you do a work that can only be explained by you. God, we thank you for loving us, for cleansing us of our sin. We thank you for not giving to us what we deserve through our unbelief. But we do pray for restoration. We do pray for a continuation of your hand in the life of this church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing to him.